Welcome back. It's box to box. It's Reza and Alex. Hi, Alex. Hi, Reza. Happy Sunday. Yes, it is Sunday. <laughs> United are beating Bayern Munich in the uh, in the ninety nine ninety nine Legends game. Yeah, but we have a we have another we guest. Have a guest. He's earned thirty five caps for the U.S. men's national team during a career which saw him play in clubs in Denmark, Germany, Sweden, and in the U.S. And is now all over YouTube as one of the hosts at Copa 90, Heath Pierce. I think there's an ambulance behind you, but welcome to, to Box to Box. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot I want to talk to you about. And um, I want to kind of just start from maybe just talk about your sort of career and see sort of what experiences you had. And ultimately, I wanted to sort of talk about a couple topics regarding uh, MLS and uh, the U.S. men's national team. So... Starting from the beginning, um, you sort of left uh, college uh, and went straight to Denmark. Is that? Yep. And that was in uh, FC Neuseeland. How do you how do you pronounce that? Neuseeland. Neuseeland. Yeah. And what was that like? I guess sort of leaving school at sort of I guess in the middle and just sort of going for it in a, in a sense. Oh, I mean. I they had been monitoring me for a while, so about halfway through my my season at University of Portland, I had gotten an offer that was worthwhile. I had spent a week with the club the summer before, just you know, training with them, and uh, I guess in some way, shape, or form, trying out with them. And and uh, there, we weren't really close to anything in terms of an offer that that I'd be willing to leave school for. And so, you know, about midway through that season, I had gotten that offer, and. Uh, you know, it was just one that I couldn't refuse, and, and it was an opportunity to start my professional career. And obviously, at the time, in, in Denmark, the club was only a few years old. Now, obviously, Norseland's gone on to, to win the league. They've played Champions League. It's, they've featured four or five other Americans since I left there. It's now owned by the Wright Stream Academy that's doing really great things with uh, developing Ghanaian players and bringing them over and increasing their their opportunities, a lot of which those players have, have gone on to play at different MLS clubs and at different universities around the U.S. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's proud for me to have been sort of at the very beginning of, of, of the club. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a great place for me to start my career. I guess what was that experience like? Sort of, I'm assuming you were either on your own or just sort of at that point you're kind of going for that sort of European professional dream and sort of being in a country for the first time. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't speak the language and just sort of settling in. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was a big difference. I mean, uh, moving to central Copenhagen was a lot easier than two and a half years later going to, to, to Germany to play uh, in terms of just the ability to sort of immerse yourself. The the, the English as a second language in, in, in Copenhagen especially is pretty incredible. Uh, and so it was it was pretty easy to just feel comfortable but at the same time you are in another country different cultures different customs different kind of expectations so you know as a 20 year old uh it was a bit of a grind uh but one that that i think helped shape and helped prepare me for any sort of difficulties that i encountered in my career uh he i was just wondering um for an american going to europe was the language barrier sort of something that you had to just deal with? Or, like, whenever the coach would give uh, talks during uh, training sessions, would he speak in his preferred language or would he speak in English? 
or and then like there would be like a translator or something. Yeah, so in Denmark it was in Danish almost always, but the coaches and the staff were all all spoke English well enough to immediately switch over and kind of give you the key key details you needed to know in English. Uh, I also was sort of forced to, to start understanding Danish. I never really learned how to speak it because when I tried to learn how to speak it, people would just switch to English and sort of just say like, you know, what is it that you want kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which was the exact opposite of, of Germany where if you tried to speak English to them or try to speak German, they sort of just, at least where I live, they sort of just look at you. And that forced me to have to learn how to speak, not just understand. So that was the biggest difference there. But yeah, it was mostly in, in sort of local language. And then and then you had plenty of people that could sort of, in the very beginning at least, tell you w- what was said. And then after six, seven, eight months, you start to hear the, the repetitive nature of phrases, especially football phrases or terminology that, that becomes second nature to you. So you start knowing what's being said, at least from an understanding standpoint. Right, right. What were sort of the biggest differences, I guess, um, like soccer tactically or culturally sort of between um, Denmark and Germany and sort of that just transition to uh, to your club there and then moving to Germany? Uh, I mean, Germany, we used to train two days a week. I mean, twice a day, tw- two days a week, just like in, in, in Denmark, except everything in Denmark was on the ball. There would be There'd be hours two-hour session sometimes where you wouldn't be on the ball. It'd just be tactically moving. You know, uh, uh, a coach would kick the ball anywhere onto the pitch, and you'd have to sort of adjust defensively into shape that, you, that, that, that you're supposed to be in. And he'd sit up at the kind of a high elevation and just sort of move people around so you knew after, like, thousands of repetition what you were supposed to do and where you were supposed to be in every scenario. Whereas the double sessions and and Denmark were much more hands-on, much more on the ball, much more small-sided, getting touches, getting repetitions in in, in other ways, and less tactical, uh, if that makes sense. No, definitely. Is there a sort of one that you prefer to that one that you found sort of really shaped, especially in that early part of your career? Did you feel like one sort of helped mold you into the player that you sort of ended up growing into? I mean, the one that probably molded me the most was probably the one that I hated the most, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I do think that game-like scenarios and getting touches on the ball are, are far more efficient and far more productive than, you know, moving around for an hour and a half without touching the ball, literally just right. shifting and shaping. But I do think that uh, the education of, the, of, of training without the ball helped me to understand as I got older and played other positions uh, – where everybody on the field needed to be, not just myself, right? Whereas if you're in an isolated situation early in my career as an outside back or, or, or uh, you know, as a center back or whatever positions I was playing, most of the scenarios I was in in Denmark where I was focusing on what I needed to do to, to, to pull my weight and, and to, to help the team as opposed to when you have 10, 10 people moving as a unit, you start to understand where everybody needs to be. You start to understand where those gaps are. You start to understand where those holes are so that as you get older and you're working with other players and you're trying to help other players, you start being able to have a better understanding of if I'm a center, if I'm a center back on the left side and they keep breaking through our right midfielder spot, knowing exactly where that person needs to be to be able to instruct them and help them and teach them something. Interesting. And I guess um, just sort of moving along, what was sort of the um, the conversations like or the turning point in terms of coming, b- um, not back to, but for the first time coming to the MLS? 
with Chivas or no FC Dallas? Sorry. Um, well, I had just signed a deal in Turkey with Versa Spor in 2009. Um, we had a, we had a few kind of like hiccups throughout the negotiation process on the final day of the transfer window. Ended up not getting the deal done until the next morning. Um, you know, <clears throat> and then by the time we had signed the deal and gone through, it was denied by the by the Turkish Federation uh, because the window had closed. So I was sort of in a tough place. This was obviously early September, I had an interest in coming back to, uh, to, to start my career in the U S or in North America. Um, the other interest that I had from England and, and, and other places that I had turned down kind of fell away. I was very much in a mode of continuing to take small steps forward in my career. It was 2009. So a year before the world cup, you know, I was getting regular games with the national team at that point. So I wanted to keep myself in the picture to, to, to make the world cup roster uh, and so it seemed like the right thing to do to continue to, to, you know, be playing matches regularly, competitive matches. So I ended up starting my career, uh, in Denmark, actually, I mean, I mean, in, um, in Dallas at the time though, Dallas was one of the, the, the poorer teams in the league, uh, at least that season. And it was them and between them and Colorado were one and two and sort of the, whatever the process is to bring players back. And I had, I had <clears throat> been wanting to go to. Colorado because I'd I'd had I heard good things about them and I wasn't hearing great things about Dallas but ended up going to Dallas and and you know we had a great season in in 2010 for sure I'm just curious you played in a couple uh obviously big leagues was there any sort of experiences you had or any stadiums you visited or teams or players you came up against it could be in the MLS as well but I'm just curious more in, ter- in terms of like a European uh in a European setting were there any sort of things that stand out as you sort of look back? I mean, the biggest thing that stood out to me in terms of just like the, the, the ability to get to the next level was 2006. I think it was my sixth cap for the national team was uh, we played against Germany in, in Dortmund. And I remember coming on for the final 20 minutes of that match and just not being able to even hear my own thoughts. There was such a hum and a, and a noise inside that stadium that – I was screaming to, to Bobby Convey, who was in front of me, and, and the center back that was next to me, and just no one could hear me. No one, like, it, it, I just felt very alone. You know, I, I realized that, you know, having been playing at that point in, in, in Denmark for a year, you know, when you played against Copenhagen or Bronby, you, you, you had a great atmosphere, but outside of that, you played in smaller stadiums where you had the ability to sort of have the advantage of being able to communicate quite simply. When I got into that stadium, playing against you know, you know some of the best players in the world where the game moved faster uh you know you had didn't have the ability to tell somebody to shift left or shift right to make your job easier you just sort of had to rely on them knowing where they needed to be and when and and it was just the first eye opener for me to realizing how good these guys are on tv that are playing in these big champions league games week in and week out and when the stadium is so loud that you can't actually use communication in, in some ways to, to, to help each other, you're just sport, sort of forced to be able to play with your eyes uh, and, and play with, play with your, uh, I guess, gut. Right. And how does that compare to the work you're doing now with Copa 90 and you're sort of, I guess, on a fan's perspective, going to these stadiums and to these countries? And how do you sort of see that sort of soccer culture on the other side, maybe of the sort of you have like the player's perspective then you obviously have the fan's perspective and how is that sort of different? Is that sort of, you're in an interesting position sort of being on both sides. So I'm just curious how that sort of changes or if you've had any 
if you've visited any stadiums that you've also played in? Yeah, I mean, I've visited quite a few stadiums that, I, that I've played in, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, my first Bundesliga match was away to Bayern Munich. Going back there again, I've done a, I've done a, I've, I've called a, a broadcast match there. I've been there uh, doing the stuff that I'm doing with Copa 90. And it, 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 you know, when you get into these, these bigger places and not to downplay some of the, the smaller clubs, but you realize what that real, I mean, you do always have that home field advantage of knowing that, you know, you have the momentum, it's a comfortable ground. But when you get into these places where you realize just how important those fans are, when you realize the supporter scene, just how passionate they are. And you always knew that. I always knew that during my career. But in terms of the uh, ability to have an actual effect on a team's ability to play, it was pretty incredible. I remember, you know, I, I don't remember if it was 2008 or 2009, Hansa Rostock. I'm pretty sure it was 2000, or sorry, 2007. We had gone on sort of a run of poor game, uh, bad, bad, bad form, and the 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 supporters wrote a letter to the club, basically saying that they were protesting us until we were going to play with more heart and more passion. And and we went into that match day, uh, and it was essentially uh, they sat down. And when they sat down, the rest of the stadium sat down. It was like a respect for sort of the the ultras, and. It was known stadium-wide, and the whole place was silent until about 20 minutes into the game when they decided that we had been playing up to the standard that they expected of us, and then they jumped up, and the place just went nuts for oh, like wow. the next 30 minutes. And it was a really, really crazy experience. One, to see the power of the fan, especially in Europe, um, and the effect that they have over a club, right? A simple letter um, caused us to have uh, multiple, multiple meetings that week basically saying, come from the president down saying, uh, you know, when the fans are doing this, something's wrong. And it was a real eye-opener for us. And obviously it sort of lit a fire under us. And, and that's the, that, that you, you realize just, just how important they are and the power that, that the fans have. Obviously, uh, Germany has really, really done it right in terms of how they've structured their stadiums, how they've prioritized the fans, the affordability of tickets, all these types of things. Germany is really the gold standard for that. Uh, but it was one thing that I, I really, really noticed. I haven't been back to, to, to Rostock since I left, but, you know, having traveled to other stadiums that I played in, stuff, you start to see just how big of an impact uh, these supporters can have on an outcome, on, 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 on a player's ability when they're having a bad day to sort of like turn it around, just knowing that you have this real buzz and energy, you, being and now having immer immersed myself into some of these scenarios, into the, in, spending time with some of the ultras and some of the terraces and things like that, you, you feel that buzz and energy and it's one of the most unbelievable feelings in the world. Do you think it's because of Germany being the gold standard or do you feel like sort of now, like I guess we can call it modern football with sort of the, the uh, expansion of sort of social media and um, players now having clothing lines and other sort of all these different side projects. Do you feel like that's something that maybe lacks? Maybe I'm, I'm more referring to sort of, certain teams' performances in, in, in England in the Premier League and uh, Manchester United. <laughs> I'm trying to rip my own team apart here. But do you feel like that's something that's sort of changed in the game now and sort of t players taking that responsibility and that ownership of their club and trying to pr actually perform and uh, make sure the supporters are, are satisfied? Well, I think it's a two-way street, right? I think that the clubs did a, did, did a poor job over the years of, pulling themselves further and further away from, from the, the fans, making the players less connectable to uh, the fans and less things in common with the fans and the club having less in common with the fans. And I think now social media has allowed, one, uh, 
clubs and media, traditional media, to not create the narratives, right? Because you had a lot of clubs and a lot of media that were teamed up together to sort of create their own narrative in local markets and in the larger markets. And now, if, if you were to do that to a player now, the player's got his own voice and multiple platforms to go out there and say, you know what, no, 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 that's not true. This is how I feel. This is what I think. And I'm in control of my own destiny. And, if, and I'm going to communicate directly with the people that are paying tickets to come see me and my 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 teammates play. And I think that that's a that's a two way street. So I think in one in one sense, the players are are, are are held to a different standard now because, you know, if Paul Pogba is out having fun or dancing in his living room after a loss, people don't think he's allowed to, right? Um, and I think that's the one thing we didn't have before with social media. Where, but also on the flip side, it allows people to connect with him on a human level and say, oh, okay, he's just like he's just like the rest of us, where he goes home at night and he takes his cape off and he takes his boots off and he and he dances around his living room. And that if we were all having a shitty day at work or a shitty day doing whatever or a bad week or bad month or whatever, it doesn't mean that we don't want to be able to distract ourselves or an escape and 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 be human on some level. No, yeah, for sure. I think that is something that sort of is maybe overlooked. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, you you see like all these types of um all these different fans that are criticizing teams that are uh, like underperforming and not hitting the standards that they that they want their team to see uh, that they want the team to get to. Do you think wh- while you were a player, like? Do you think the fans that like uh like that example that you gave with the letter and the 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 fans uh sitting down until you guys try to play with heart is it, it does it sometimes backlash on the players when you know this criticism is given towards the players or is it something that actually you know like gets the gets the players to actually like do what the fans want them to do I mean it, it, it's tough to say. I mean, obviously, there's no one single single answer for 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 all fans and all players. I tend to find that whenever I was criticized on some level in my career on social media on somebody who tags you or doesn't tag you, and you respond to them, uh, they tend to become fans. You know, like if if they're haters, they become fans. And it, it, there's a lot of low hanging fruit criticism out there that exists, and a lot of it's not merited or or well well sort of like thought thought through. But um, I think it could have. I think it's sorry. There's something coming past me now that's really loud. <laughs> no uh, worries. Uh, 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 you guys are getting all the sound effects from me today. But yeah, I think. Can you guys hear me all right, Phil? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, in general, generally speaking, it can have it can have a positive or or negative effect. One, I think it, it depends on the player. A lot of players are, no matter how what they put out in the social media, are very sensitive. A lot of players are also have thick skin and are capable of. Of, of, of taking the criticisms and, and, and some can't. And I think that's not just necessarily from the fans, but that's also players, that's also players within a squad, you know, a, a certain coach. That's why you see people like Pep Guardiola that hold everybody to the same standard, but then knows that when I need to pull somebody in the room and light a fire under them, that's different than the next guy who just needs a hug, right? It's knowing that, that, that human management, that ego management, that's, that's so important on, on a coaching level. And it's the same with the fans. Some, 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 some players, literally have Google Google alerts every time their name is mentioned anywhere on the internet know exactly what's coming in you know and, and I know multiple people that 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 operate that way and then you have others that uh, try to distract themselves when we were having bad times in Germany there was we banned newspapers from 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 the locker rooms because uh, one we thought it was a distraction and two the newspapers were absolutely so ridiculous and so 
so poorly written in terms of like being just tabloid journalism that that it didn't have it served no purpose other than to sell newspapers right not not to tell the truth or or build a, an actual narrative it was building their own narrative that was going to further sell magazines or sell newspapers if that makes sense so th- it could have all kinds of different effects and i don't think there's one one specific way that's that's good or bad uh, yeah i think i think you're you hit the nail on the head i think there's definitely a way to and I guess that's why sort of after every game, you sort of see people on Sky or wherever other channels. There are these huge feuds about sort of what's the right, like, direction that these players should be having. And it's just interesting to hear your take on it, just given the position you've been in. Um, I want to sort of shift the conversation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, you saw with Arsenal Fan TV for a long time that eventually it just became a joke, right? And now it's kind of dialed itself back to being a credible thing where people can come and give their voice and they've got their own shows and things like that. But for a long time, for almost a a season, season, two seasons, they just met outside the Emirates after every match and players would just go off and, and it dehumanized all the players and things like that. And it started to create a really ugly thing because now people Did we lose him? Uh, maybe. Easier for me to believe that than to do oh. my own research and form my own opinion. It's a lot easier to just buy into the low-hanging fruit of what everybody else is saying. And I think that was detrimental. But uh, you know, we, I, I think that that's obviously shifted quite a bit, quite a bit now. And I think the narrative is much more more positive because of social media. Yeah, absolutely. Like with uh, your example of Arsenal fan TV, you know, I'm an Arsenal fan, and it, it it's really. You know, it's really uh, poisoning to see, like, fans. I feel like it comes from the fans first, and then it just, like, goes on to, like, the manager or or the players, and you never want to see, like, a split between uh, the fans and the team. Can you hear me? Sorry, you were cutting out there for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah we can hear. Yeah, I can hear you. Um, No, he was just sort of, Alex okay. was just sort of bringing up Arsenal fan TV and just, like, the the poison that it can create and the yeah. gap the gap between the fans and the team itself. It's just that, like, while Wenger was there, like, I feel like even if we won a game, it would still, there would still be something in the game or just outside of it that, like, someone would argue with even if we got, like, three points or we moved on to the next round of something. But, like, now, I guess, fans are, like, together now. Uh, we're in a European final the only like issue is the like tickets that's at Baku right now, but that's a completely different story. Uh, right, but, but that's something we're arguing over, right? That's for for all fans, and that's where you've now seen a unique opportunity for Chelsea and 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 Arsenal to sort of team up and say this is absolutely unacceptable for a number of reasons, not just for the tickets, but for the travel, for for the stuff going on with Mkhitaryan, just all the all, all, all of these types of. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, not Mkhitaryan. Um, yeah, Mkhitaryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, all, all, all of these, all of these different things going on. Like that's that's something that starts to rally people together because it becomes more of like the the, the football purist or the football fan versus this giant machine. And I think that starts to bring people together as unacceptable as all that has been. Um, versus again, nitpicking where again, Man United go and win a Europa League and people are still pissed off. Yeah. Instead of just being like, well the run can't go on forever and you still now want another piece of silverware 
you know, that sort of thing, just like losing perspective because, because you're watching new, newer, newer money come into the league and, 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 and kind of blow past people. Absolutely. As interesting as, as I said, I think this is a really, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I think we can go on for hours on this, but (laughs) given the time, um, I definitely wanted to talk to you about uh, two topics that I think are uh, very close to you. One is sort of looking at MLS, and I'm, I'm given sort of your stance on what we just talked about. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you think about this. But I wanted to talk about starting with MLS and then later with the U.S. Men's National Team, looking at the Gold Cup and sort of the World Cup down the line as well. But starting with where the league is at, maybe from when you were, pl- um, the difference between from where it is now to compare to sort of when you were playing it or even before that, looking at sort of how teams are structured, how many teams are even in the league. We have three new time, three new teams coming in, which I think takes it to 27. What, what's your whole stance on this? How, how, how long can we go in sort of including teams and more money coming in, how teams are spending money? What's your, what's your overall take on growth on MLS? Uh, I mean, obviously, franchise fees are helping to sort of, you know, trickle down to help clubs across the league. I think there's still some clubs that are that are stuck in that MLS 1.0 or say 2.0 that are playing in soccer-specific stadiums. We saw with the stuff with Columbus right now. We're seeing with New England, uh, sort of left behind. You know, even FC Dallas continues to put a solid product onto the, onto the pitch, but in terms of the atmosphere at the club. Uh, and, and these types of things. Houston also, the attendances. I, I think I think there's a struggle with the clubs that are in that 2.0, right? They went and built soccer-specific stadiums, but the, 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 the reach into the communities and, and, and into the demographic that you really want in those stadiums is, is, is lacking a bit. Now, I think the entry point for new clubs coming into the league is the bar is set way, way, way higher than any, uh, any of those uh kind of older clubs right they're they're the ones that have been funding the league for a long time so i I have nothing but respect for them i think there's a lot of changes that need to happen within those clubs but for the new clubs coming in the standard is set so high right when you look at everyone from uh starting with uh, toronto to kansas city to orlando to atlanta to lafc like mls is finding a way to master the in-stadium experience right from sort of the melting pot of cultures and support styles from Bada Brava to ultras to the hooligans to whatever, to creating this really, really unique atmosphere where people are saying, you know what? We're totally cool not having the history. We're not 100 years old, but we're going to pick and choose, except we're going to do this with a, in, in a positive light and for the most part bring a positive experience to it, pushing sort of a progressive perspective. And I think that's a really, really good thing for the league. Now, I think there's going to be too many teams in the league. And my only support for that right now is that I think it tees the league up in five years or 10 years or 20 years to say, you know what, we've got too many teams. We need to figure out how we're going to do a D1 and a D2 and really, really find a way how money and franchise fees within all of this or any sort of pools of money are going to help to support teams that are going to drop down and come up so that you can create two sustainable leagues because at 34 games a year or 38 or 40 games a year, I just can't see how me as a fan I'm going to be excited about forever anyway uh, about about playing 30 30 something teams 36 teams or 38 teams right like uh, I, I think in the beginning that, that that's cool and that's exciting but again when you want to start to create uh rivalries you have to you know what don garber said before which is like let's populate the country with teams and then let's start to make sure that we have local rivalries within all of that right so you have something that can allow 
over time so that in 10 years or 20 years, you had some real natural rivalries. Obviously, LAFC and, and LA Galaxy is a new rivalry, and it's not even a real one yet. But with what LAFC has done, it's created an instant, like, looking over your shoulder saying, yeah, we've got all these trophies, but they've got all this support. They've got the 3252, and it's all these unique sort of storylines that are happening naturally as opposed to saying, uh, you know what? These two teams are in the same state. They should hate each other. Um, it's, it's allowed the actual supporters to build on that of legacy versus new and, and, and plastic versus whatever and all the things that they want to create, I think, is, is much more natural. Now, uh, you know, not to repeat myself, but I think something needs to be done in terms of the amount of teams within the league uh, eventually to create uh, a promotion relegation system. And maybe I'm unrealistic or maybe I'm, 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 I'm crazy for that. But I think if the team, if, if it continues to grow to that, the only way to really, to really create a demand over time uh, where you can start to increase the TV dollars and you can start to increase the TV contracts is to start having stakes at every single match, right? And that means you're playing for something within the region or, or you're, you know, whether it's, you know, some sort of larger Champions League type thing and relegation. I think that starts to create a reason for me as a fan to not only turn up to every match, but then to make sure that I'm tuning into every match when my team is away. You know, I, I think you, again, you hit the nail on the head there. I think I, we've all been talking, at least I have about promotion relegation for the last like few years, five years at least. And I, I, I it's a, it's a thing where, I mean, it's, it's, it's besides the fact, but the U S is also, we're not talking about England where you can take trains and all the teams are sort of compact in sort of this small country. You're like, you're looking at legitimate expenses for teams as well. If you're looking at, the travel cost for traveling to sort of however many 30 away games or however many it's going to be. How do you see, especially looking at NASL and the USL and all the other leagues under that, do you ever see the U.S. in a four-tier, similar to England with the Football League, a four-tier or a three-tier, or frankly even a MLS 1 and an MLS 2, for example? Do you realistically see that happening? I'm, I'm more curious about how USL and NASL play into this as well. <clears throat> Um, absolutely. I think, I think, well, it'll, it'll be tough to see kind of how USL plays out, uh, over the next 10 years in terms of how they establish themselves, whether as an independent league and start to create their own tier system as independent football, um, or on the flip side, uh, trying to get into a, a two or three tier league, uh, with, with, with major league soccer. Obviously, if you're an owner that's been funding your team for a long time and somebody says to you, Hey, just so you know, you might lose half or three quarters of what this is worth in a couple of years, there's going to probably be a quick majority veto on, on any opportunity to create pro rel. But I do think for the game to grow eventually, and I don't know if that's going to happen in 10 years or if it's in 30 years, but I do see pro rel existing in the United States. And I do see that being a monumental m moment, I think uh, for the future of the sport here, for the future of development, for the future of, 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 of everything. I don't think, uh, we'll stick to this sort of Americanized playoff system. It might, it might be a hybrid. It might be something that we've never even sort of uh, seen yet in the way that they're doing now with, say, the Danish league, which started to create this the, the competitive nature of saying you play everybody home and away in a 12-team league, and then they go into basically the champions group, the middle group, and then the relegation group where it's four or five teams or six teams playing home and away in the same way that they have sort of like in Belgium and things like that, where it starts to at least create a 10, 12 game uh, string of matches where your your regular season form and your playoff form are all sort of interjoined or or interrelated, so that it does create stakes from the very start. But it's not necessarily saying 
you know, here's a single single table and 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 you go up or you go down based on, you know, the 34 games you play home and away against these teams or whatever it is, or maybe you play one team once each year with the amount of teams coming in the league. Yeah, I actually didn't even know about that uh, about the Danish league with that uh, system, but I I feel like with the promotion relegation and uh or the playoffs, I I feel like the main reason why. Uh, promotion relegation or just to make two uh, MLS te- uh, leagues uh, should be more it, – it, it's beneficial because with the teams that uh, are, like, uh, lower lower in the table, like, right now, like, Cincinnati's in last in Eastern Conference, they're going to get uh, benefited, actually, when it comes to, like, the MLS draft. They're going to have a high pick. And, which is very similar to you know American sports uh, with like NFL and NBA. Uh, I feel like that that shouldn't that shouldn't happen because you know in every other league, if you are last, you get punished instead of getting benefited. I, I, I that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, I, I I think there does need to be a, a lack of status quo or at least some sort of standard set. So because you've got so many di- different generations. Uh, of when people have come into the league, it's tough to go to the Kraft family or the Hunt family that have been here since '96 and saying, you know what, I've I've been I owned three teams at one one point in this league, and I've been pumping money into the growth of soccer here in the United States. It's tough to explain to them that yeah, but like this is the new standard here, right? It, it's a very it's a very hard sell of the people who have gotten you to that point. You know what I mean? It's it's almost like yeah, having a team that's taken you to the championship and then having to go tell those players, yeah, well, now we're in the championship. We need championship quality players or championship to the Premier League type of thing, right? It's a it's a it's it's a tough conversation that needs to be had. But I don't think anybody's I don't think anybody at Major League Soccer is 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 convinced that what what uh, what sort of what the standard in 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 New England is of playing in this football stadium of playing on you know with it being what feels like empty because of the size of the stadium is, 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 is making even new England as a club happy. Right. I think, I think they know that there is a lot of things that need to be done. Um, but it's tough. To, it's really tough to say kind of where it's going to, where it's going to go or, or, you know, it, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I wish I had that. I wish I had the No, no, you know, yeah. It's, I think it's an open conversation. I think the, I think the, the opinion we all have is sort of on one level or another sort of agreeing in the fact that this is maybe not the most sustainable uh It's just like going plan, too far, but, I think. But I think there is, and that, uh, Heath, what you said, it's about sort of populating teams all over the country. And what happens at that point is something that I think is really exciting. Yeah, I think, I think obviously, as you start to create high quality sports and entertainment in regions around or local communities around the country, you start to have, you start to create legacy within all that. So when people leave, you start to have the same fan base, you know, it's, it's, it's creating history in real time uh, for the future generations. Obviously we're not seeing it happen because it's a, it's a big slow moving ship. But I think, I mean, if, if you really think about this, right, we're 22 years into the league or 23 years into the league, I mean, imagine what 20 years from now, what MLS is going to be, right? Okay, say you can say it's the world-class standard or it's a top-quality standard or maybe it's the new gold standard for how many teams are within the league and how sustainable it is. I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know that if you look at sort of the growth from 96 to, to, to now, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty 
pretty remarkable thing. It's just got a long way to saying, we all know that the real money comes when the TV contracts come. So how do we increase the, the, the viewership, right? And maybe that's, maybe that's my kids that need to grow up within the game here and, and supporting the game locally. Or I don't know what the marketing plan is for that 20 years from now. And I don't, I'm not even sure if they do, but I think there is an excitement around where this could really go. And so that your, your, your pro rel people, your, your people who like to watch the games, the people who like to watch in front of their TV or at a pub all have something that's a really, really proud product. For sure. It's also, can you hear us or no? Yeah, I can hear you. Sweet. It's also interesting to see how, um, just to sort of wrap this up, I think teams as well, or as an organization, the way that they've brought in players also sort of, it was in parallel in terms of the growth of the league and the amount of teams that were coming in, but also the way that teams were signing players and DPs. And I think the DP mindset has also changed and i'm looking at sort of how toronto did it with uh altador giovinco and bradley and sort of at their they're not in their like the their mid 30s or they're even going into their 30s we're all sort of late 20s and seeing how atlanta basically perfected i think the dp game but i think also we've moved away from and you've had some sort of experience sort of looking at like the beckham days and I think Ibra and Rooney were also sort of the last of the bunch of the Henri. sort of like, not even Henri, but like I think Ibra and Rooney are sort of the last sort of, I'm going to go to the MLS mm-hmm. as my sort of last hurrah. But I also think that also um, really benefits the, the league as well. In terms of we're buying younger DPs and from uh, DPs, young, I think there's also, a, I haven't really, never figured it out. It's but a young DP. Young DP, but basically... <clears throat> investing in players that are better younger and actually giving them the salaries that they deserve as well to keep them in the league. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at uh, MLS is going down and plucking the best young talent out of South America now, right? Exactly. We're looking at Boca juniors. We're looking at river plate. We're looking at uh, Corinthians, Sao Paulo. We're looking at the biggest clubs around South America, whether it's Uruguay or it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, Central American clubs or South American clubs were going and saying, well, if that person costs 20 million or 10 million or 15 million, and they're just going to end up at an Ajax or they're going to end up at a bigger club even or a PSV or, or, or they're going to end up, you know, at Anderlecht, if not going to much bigger clubs that can, that can pay those types of transfer fees, let's bring them in house here and let's be comfortable that if we can turn 20 into 40 and sell them on, we've done a good deal. When you look at Miguel Almiron, this is the perfect model of a club that's not only getting results, not only winning, but saying, you know what? We're going to now take this guy from, from this stage that we got him in in his career. We're going to develop him in a highly competitive environment amongst other good quality players. And then we're going to increase, we're going to double his value. And then we're going to, we're going to, we're going to sell him on. And I think that's, that's a comfortable place to be in. That's an exciting place. Obviously, MLS for a long time didn't want to be a selling league. But now you're starting to see clubs like Atlanta building rosters that are sustainable and saying not one guy, right? It's not your one DP. It's not one single guy that, that, that ups the quality of your team. You're actually building quality up the spine across all positions, and now you're starting to build depth to where you can go to a guy like Almiro and say, his time here is up, and it's time for him to go instead of holding him hostage or instead of, instead of uh, thinking that we don't want to get rid of him. I think now the league's at a point where you can let those guys and you can move them on, and that, that alone, you can take that money and pump it back into your academies and develop players so that in 10 years from now, we're seeing a whole fresh batch of players coming through a system that not only one are going to be top top level talent but two have now looked at 
uh, Martinez have now looked at Almarone as their idols in their local communities to go, wow, I now go, I now go to a match and I stand here at the exit of the match and I watch a guy driving out of my stadium in a Ferrari that's playing in the league that I grew up watching, right? And that's where you start to get that local connection of people that are inspired by, instead of looking and going like, oh, everyone here is shit, there's not any good players here. You're actually looking going like, I'm looking at Joseph Martinez, who's filthy rich now playing in this league and he's scoring goals and he's inspiring to me because, you know, he's got his bleached blonde hair and he's got this attitude and he's tatted up and he's got this crazy car. Like that, that's who we all look, looked up to, not necessarily for all those reasons, but like, you know, you, you're starting to create that local connection with kids in the community being like, no, no, no. I want to start my career here. I want to be like Joseph Martinez, and then I want to go. Then, then I want to go to broad like abroad like Almiron, and I can have all of that within this ecosystem now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that, and and, and I, I'm actually I'm actually glad that you know those kinds of players like like when Ibra and Rooney uh, uh, retire, whenever they they will retire, uh, I I want to see more of those players like Almiron that. Obviously, playing for Newcastle now, and Joseph Martinez, who maybe uh, might go to Europe someday, and you know all the other like youngsters in uh, on uh, Atlanta or Red Bulls or LA Galaxy, even even like even like young Americans uh, that are you know uh, are up and coming and trying to go into Europe. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm not saying MLS is the, is the is the only answer for that, right? We saw that wave where everybody was criticizing uh, MLS or or the development of U.S. soccer by forcing a guy like Michael Bradley, not forcing a guy like Michael Bradley, right? Michael Bradley was the guy we would assume he was my roommate for a long time. He was the guy that I would I would have put all my money on, saying he would never come back for any amount of money. But when you five x or six x somebody's salary, that's life changing money for them, and you put them at a club like Toronto where the supporters are great, and you promise to build a club around them, saying we're going to win championships here. And then you follow through on that, like that's a pretty appealing thing for a guy, right? Yeah. Because you're still checking the boxes of, of, of being competitive. He's gone out and he's chased things. Michael Bradley went from Heronvane, you know, then he was at Gladbach, then he was at Kievo, then he was at Roma. Like he took all those little steps and then and then the money came. The money came the right way. And that's the thing that you're selling people on, which is like, don't go for the money grab now. Work your way up the chain. Mm-hmm. Work your way up small clubs and the money will come to you eventually. And it doesn't always happen that way. But bringing a guy like that, bringing a guy like that back, inspires the next generation of kids to say, you know what, you're right. I shouldn't just go from, from wherever I am to, I don't know, what the right club is, Barcelona or something like that, when, in the rare opportunity or a club where I'm just going to take step back, steps backwards in my career. There's a whole, different, a whole bunch of different ways to, to, to make it as a player. And <clears throat> now we're starting to see that balance of, I think there's like 40, or I, I'd heard recently like 40 or 60 players within the youth ranks of German clubs right now. There's a bunch of kids around the England youth setups. There's a bunch of kids in academies in the U.S., and they're all spreading out, and we're watching them develop in a whole bunch of different environments, right? When you look back, even Michael Bradley at Heronvane, he was there when, when, when Robbie Rogers was there, and they had completely different outcomes in terms of Michael Bradley loved training twice a day every day, whereas on the, on the flip side, I don't know, it, it, it's a very difficult place. It's a 15,000-person city, right? There's nothing there. It's football, 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 and and. I would say most people would struggle in those scenarios, but there are some people that would thrive in those, right? And that's the kind of place that Michael Bradley thrives in. And, mm-hmm. and I think having now that comfort of saying, we don't need all players to play in MLS, young players. We don't need all players to be abroad. And I don't think any national team coach or, or any manager anywhere should be saying, I only want guys who are playing abroad or I only want guys playing in the U.S. Like we've seen sort of a habit to lean towards or make comments on over the past sort of like 10 years 
now we need to have just like players everywhere. And we're just starting to see a lot more players across all systems where Tyler Adams isn't a, is a success story in the same way that Weston McKinney is in the way in the route that he went to Europe, right? Absolutely. In the same way that now young players who are staying in the league for a couple more years in MLS are also considered success stories. You know, when you look at Walker Zimmerman for LAFC, he's going to continue under Bob Bradley, who's one of the top coaches in the league, continue in a competitive environment where the demand and the standard is set high every single day playing with guys like Carlos Vela. Uh, in the same way that Weston McKinney and, and Pulisic and, and, and Tyler Adams are in Europe right now. I think you segued it perfectly into talk more about the U.S. national team. Looking at, um, I think we'll bypass the Gold Cup conversation, but I'm more interested in sort of your thoughts with uh, the main group of young guys, especially the ones that are all sort of have either come up in the European system or left uh, the MLS very early, looking at players like Tyler Adams, Matt Miazga. Uh, what do you, what, where are you where are you at with uh, Greg Berhalter, the new sort of flock of young European-based players, and looking at 2022? Well, look, I think I think that wave that we saw of massive salaries to come back to MLS has passed, and I think it was a good wave that we had. I think with Josie Clint, Michael Bradley, these were all guys that earned everything that they've, they've, they've earned in their careers. And I think that was a good thing. I think that's sort of been tempered in the meantime. So I don't think we're going to see any of these guys get brought back at the prime of their careers in the way that we did before, where it was like, can't say no type of opportunities. I mean, maybe we will, but again, if that happens, that happens, but I, I'm, I'm excited just about sort of the reset that's happening right now. Right. I think the, the conversation while, while still sort of ugly at times in terms of what are we doing for development in the U S and, and, and things like that um, is, 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 is a positive one. And having spent some time within people within the U.S. soccer circles, they said the one thing that they will say from Jurgen Klinsmann's era, regardless of how you define failure, was that in 10, 15 years, you'll see the, the sort of the fruits of his labor, um, which is the demand that he had in, 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 in oversight on academies, on oversight on player development, oversight at the, at the lowest, lowest levels, which we're obviously going to bear no fruit in the short term, but there were ones that people that I know from within that system said are going to pay dividends for the U S in the future. Now, is that the group we have now? I, I, I can't say I'm excited about them because they seem fearless. They seem ruthless. And it's sort of n- not to put them in, in the same conversation of, of watching what Monaco was like or what Ajax was like this season, but it really does feel like that at times, at, at times, obviously not that type of quality, but other times that youthfulness, that's fearless to just go out there and play a little bit of that, attitude and swag of I'm a young baller and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'll take on any one type of thing, I think is, 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 is a really good thing that, that we should be trying to harness and then, and then, and then uh, grow tenfold uh, in the U.S. because that is the very U.S.-centric uh, sports mentality, right? It's not built into this don't-be-yourself system or, or the team-first type of not, – not necessarily team-first, but you know a lot of these other <clears throat> more established – uh, football countries around Europe where they don't like personalities, they don't like bold uh, bold statements, they don't like these types of things. I think in the U.S. we have the ability to harness that sort of character and that American attitude and, and, and really turn that into something special, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's so, it's so um, refreshing to see, you know, even young players like uh, Will Trapp is, is now uh, being the captain at sometimes. Uh, for the for the national team 
And, you know, players uh, that are still relatively young, you know, like Tyler Adams is very young, uh, uh, you know, Wes McKinney, like you were saying, Pulisic, they're kind of actually turning into leaders in a way for the new, like even newer guys like Josh Sargent and Tim Weah. And, like, that's sort of good that, you know, those young guys are trying to become leaders at a younger age than trying and, and also like varying from different parts of Europe than just sticking with, you know, MLS players that obviously didn't work out so well uh, for uh, last year's World Cup. Yeah, I think it was time for 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 obviously a, a reset, you know, and keeping a guy like Michael Bradley in who's who's got a hundred and I don't know fifty caps uh, is is an important thing to sort of keeping that character because I think that I think we tried to transition quickly out of what we had and what we want to be, and that's where we started to get into trouble, right? Which was when we used to play national team games away, the only conversations we'd be having is pull your weight and cover the ass of your teammate, right? Let's get in here. Let's be more disciplined. Let's get our chances. We win this game, and then we get out of here. That was it. That was that was the pure standard. Now, does that set you up for a long-term success? Obviously not, no. but it got you it got you the results that you needed, right? It, 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 it's a it's a home and away type of type of tournament type of thing when you're in qualifying. And so you play tactically. Uh, do I ever think we're going to go down to Costa Rica and dominate uh, uh, at Saprissa or in the national stadium? I think it's always going to be very difficult because there's so many factors that you can't control there. But, um, but I do think with this young, young group of players, these kids are building brands now, right? Like you look at them on social media and they've got that sort of energy and that confidence of like saying, I not necessarily I've made it, but I've got this, that I'm, I'm a baller and I'm a professional. I'm playing at this club or that club, but you're still seeing them go out on the field and, 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 and bring it day in and day out. And I think that's a unique recipe or a unique kind of like special sauce that you want, right? You don't want it to be uh, these guys that are all flashed because they got a whole bunch of followers because they made a transfer somewhere and they're not doing anything, anything on the field. I think we're past that phase in that era. We're starting to see these guys being themselves on social media, but being themselves on the field and, and, and becoming professionals at 17, 18 years old. So by the time they're 20, 21, they're a lot more comfortable with who they are. They know who they are a lot more. They're much more confident and, 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 and they can play. And I think yeah. that's a really, really you know, cool thing. And I don't know if that lasts forever or if it's just the crop of players we have now. But again, when you look at the next generation, the guys that are looking up to Tim Weyer, that are looking up to Tyler Adams, that are looking up to Weston McKinney, that are looking up to, 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 to a number of different players across the national team, they're, they're, they're looking at them as, as like people they look up to. And I think you're going to start to see more and more of those people um, within the squad be uh, role models or inspiring uh, without even trying to, to the kids who are 15, 16, 17 saying, wow, I, like in two years I could be Tyler Adams or in three years I can be Tyler Adams. I've just got to put in the work or, or the 12, 13 year old kid that's looking at them now saying, wow, these are young millionaires. These are, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a lot of those types of things that, that can flip the switch on for, for kids in a number of different environments and scenarios. So I think, you know, I think right now it's, it's, it's a healthy and, and exciting place to be in the U S soccer landscape. Yeah. And that's like sort of also the positives of social media, like using those young players to show that they're, just out there to have fun and play with their hearts and kill it. Exactly. Yeah. Heath, thank you so much. Uh, this was a really interesting conversation and uh, appreciate you taking the time to speaking with us. No, thank you guys for having me. All right. We'll talk later. See you. Right. Bye. Bye.